Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. We all know that climate change has been detrimental to the health of our Earth with increased deforestation and melting ice caps. But what about our own health or our children's health? My guest today is Dr. Aaron Bernstein from Harvard University, who focuses on the health impacts of the climate crisis on children's health and advancing solutions to address its causes to improve the health and well-being of children around the world. We're going to discuss this issue especially as it relates to the current COVID-19 pandemic and how that disease has a connection to our changing climate. Thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Delighted to be with you. So, uh, Aaron, this is really a fascinating topic and one that, as a climate scientist, people have been asking me about for some time. Is there a connection between climate change and coronavirus. And I know, for example, as a scientist, that there are connections to infectious disease, but I am interested in your answer to that. But before I go there, and our Weather Geeks listeners know this is coming, I always like to ask guests, how did you get involved in what you're currently doing as a career? Was it something that started as a kid, a passion? Tell us how you became who you are as a scientist. That's a great question. So I'm a pediatrician. Um, I just came from working at Boston Children's Hospital. And so my day job is really focused on keeping kids well. And, and, you know, I decided to go to medical school, not through the traditional uh, path. I, I, in college, um, actually going back to seventh grade, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not the youngest person you've probably interviewed. Uh, I was really fortunate to hear about and learn about climate change in seventh grade. In college, I learned about climate change from Steve Schneider, uh, and and I was kind of fascinated by the problem. Um, I was also fascinated by other forms of global environmental change that you know how life is changing on Earth. Um, and I decided to go to medical school for for a bunch of reasons. Uh, but when I got to medical school, I went to folks uh, and said, you know, I'm really trying to understand these you know, how climate change or how changes in biodiversity matter to health, because it sort of seemed like there should be a there there. And I was more or less told, no, there isn't a there there. <laughs> so I actually went back to, to some of my college professors, including Steve Schneider, and I said, you know, is there anyone you know who's looking at, at in that case, the connection between climate and health? And that's how I got to where I'm working today, the center I'm working at today at Harvard. Um, People still ask me as a pediatrician why I'm focused so much on climate change. And it's really kind of easy. You know, pediatricians, our job is to keep kids healthy. And there's so much we can do. I mean, between vaccinations and, you know, trying to give good guidance on diets and, and the whole suite of things we can do. But at the end of the day, if we don't have a stable climate, it's, it's really hard to keep children healthy. And so I sort of keep, see it as a core piece of my job as a pediatrician to work on this. Well, as a, as a father of two kids, 13 and 16, we certainly I, um, thank you, all pediatricians, for what you do for our kids. It's critical. 
Um, you know, I want to give, oh, by the way, before I do this, though, you heard um, Aaron talk about Steven Schneider. If you don't know who he is, listeners, Google him. He's a legendary scientist in the field of climate. I actually happen to serve uh, as a juror on a committee that selects a, a climate war award every year in honor of Steven Schneider that uh, his uh, organization founded. So I'm very well versed. So make sure you Google Steven Schneider. But let me just give you a, a sort of the rundown on Dr. Aaron Bernstein, because Hands down, uh, our, our producers, uh, I don't know who, whether this is Sarah or Heather that wrote up some notes for me, but said this is hands down one of the longest background pieces on a guest that I've had to write so far. So let me just give you a piece of who Dr. Aaron Bernstein is. He's the interim director of the Center for Climate, Health, and Global Environmental Change at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, also called Harvard Sea Change. He's, a, as you've heard him say, a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital. He's also assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Med Medical School. He leads Climate MD, a Harvard Sea Change program, positions to transform climate change from an issue of politics to one of concern and relevance. And that's one of the things that's very important to me as a scientist as well. There's more, but I'm going to uh, sort of interject some of those other things later about Dr. Bernstein because there's so much. But you talked a little bit about how you got into this area of climate change and health-related issues. Um, what are some of the specific health issues that you are seeing an increase in due to climate change? And by the way, we know climate change is happening now as scientists. There's a lot of talk about it. It's not about the year 2080 or about a polar bear. It's happening right now. Yeah. I mean, the reality is, Marshall, can I call you Marshall? Absolutely. So. <laughs> um, there's no aspect of our health for which climate change doesn't matter. But let's focus on the here and now. So uh, just uh, yesterday in Chicago, it was 94 degrees. Chicago's my hometown. I lived through the Chicago heat wave uh, in 93, which was a sort of sentinel event in terms of what climate change means health. And that Events, as you and your listeners probably know, there were hundreds of people who died in the span of a few days, mostly African Americans living on the South Side. And the, the sort of the story that stuck in my mind, which was written up in the Trib uh, from that event, was of an older black man who lived by himself on the third story of a brownstone uh, with no air conditioning. He had a fan on. And and he died, and no one and and no one knew about it for days. And I, you know, when I saw that headline that Chicago broke its record for heat yesterday, ninety four degrees uh, in Chicago, it, my mind immediately jumped to that. And here we are today in a nation that is in crisis over racial injustice in the middle of a pandemic, and now an unprecedented heat wave. And I'm thinking. This is how climate change affects health. We have problems that are longstanding. We have racism. We have, we've had emerging infections, but now we're dealing in, with climate. Heat is a risk unto itself. But what do we do? What's the mainstay solution for heat? It's to send people to cooling centers. Well, we're not going to be able to do that because it was hard enough to get folks to go there in the first place. Older people are understandably going to be concerned about going to cooling centers. 
And so we now have risks of people getting, we know that people aren't seeking medical care. So uh, people are worried about going to hospitals. You can imagine someone who might be willing to go to an emergency room without a pandemic because they're at risk from heat. Now they're going to say, I'm not sure I want to go there. I'm not sure I want to go. And so we, we see this right now. Halfway around the world, we've got, uh, you know, in Mumbai, uh, we've got Cyclone uh, Nisarga, right? So that just hit Mumbai. There's now in, in this week's editions of the Proceeding of the National Academy of Science is a paper showing that, you know, we've known for a long time that Atlantic hurricanes are getting stronger. We now have strong evidence that cyclones are getting stronger from climate change, and they're in the middle of COVID. So it couldn't be clearer that, you know, and this is not even talking to the whole mountainous stuff that has to do with how it affects our brains, our lungs, our bodies, and other ways. Uh, climate change is affecting our ability to deal with this pandemic. And, it, and, and, and the key part is that it's, it's hitting on the same vulnerabilities that we see uh, people at risk for with the pandemic. Yeah, I, I, I remember I served on a National Academy of Sciences uh, study for the military several years back. And I remember that we wrote some things in there about climate change being a threat multiplier or amplifying already existing inequities and, and marginalizations in society. And I think you hit upon some of those things right away. Um, I, in the past, I've actually had some interactions with colleagues at the CDC here in Georgia uh, on the these very issues of sort of climate and the heat. By the way, in that another academy's report that I was involved with that you touched upon it, heat uh, is the clearest sort of attribution to climate change, extreme heat events that we have. And I wrote something in Forbes a couple of weeks ago talking about that there have been several places in the world that have reached the sort of human limit of the of sort of uh, I guess inhabitability in terms of heat and, and humidity. So you know we've touched upon that. Uh, I want to shift gears and we'll circle back to some of the issues that we talk about with climate change, because I also know that there are issues with vector-borne disease as it relates to climate change, dengue and other things. But what's on a lot of people's mind right now is COVID, coronavirus. It's a novel virus. Coronaviruses have been around. I want to kind of clarify that for our listeners. We, this isn't just a coronavirus. There are coronavirus, but this is a novel new form. I think SARS-CoV-2 or something, you're the, the expert there. Tell us about the intricacies of the COVID-19 climate change weather world that we're dealing with. And I also would like your thoughts on what you're hearing about whether the warming season is going to beat back coronavirus. Yeah, so it's a really important question. So at one level, as we just talked about, climate change makes dealing with this so much more difficult, right? Between the, you know, the heat waves, the hurricanes, potentially wildfires and, and air pollution exposures. So it's, it's just sort of how climate change destabilizes health and health systems, right? So healthcare systems. Uh, it's a real risk for letting pandemics fester. But, but when you really dig into this, climate change matters to the whole suite of things that have led to this mess, starting from the bat that probably held this virus spilling into a human to the, 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 you know, the very actions we need to take to try and protect ourselves. So, you know, we expect that the virus uh, has a bat reservoir because that's where we find coronaviruses. As you mentioned, we've had MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, also a coronavirus, SARS in 2003, also a coronavirus, and people looked in bats and, and found them. Now, 
we don't have direct evidence in any way, shape, or form that that climate has, for example, pushed bats into places that might have put them in close contact, closer contact with people. But we certainly have evidence with other diseases that have come out of bats, like Ebola, as a very good example, that deforestation has taken away their homes, and that pushes them to live near people, which is a risk mm. for exposure. And, you know, we know that in China, one of the big reasons that people are going into the forest is to harvest wildlife for pets, for traditional medicines. Um, we don't know exactly how the contact happened, but clearly deforestation is a problem for climate change, and it's a problem for the emergence of diseases. And then we go all the way across. I mean, we can talk about the air pollution piece. We know that air pollution from burning fossil fuels, big problem for spreads of diseases like coronavirus and how sick you get, big problem for climate change. And then you land it, what are we going to do about it? Well, you know, you know, in many parts of the world, people are running out of water and we need water to wash hands. You know, we in the United States think we're going to have hand sanitizer, but most parts of the world are relying on soap and water. And if you don't have water, you can't wash your hands. And if you can't wash your hands, you can't do a fundamental piece of protecting yourself. And in places around the world, you alluded to the temperature effect. I think the, the paper I saw most recently showed that the rate of warming above the wet bulb temperature threshold, you know, I know your audience is going to know wet bulb temperature, so I can go for that. <laughs> well, some of them may. We'll, 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 so you go ahead and use it, and we'll break it down a little bit more for them. So, uh, you know, essentially our bodies can only dissipate heat up to a certain wet bulb temperature. You go above that, we cook. And so we, we, we now have evidence that the rates of wet bulb temperature warming are, are, are occurring far faster and in many more places than we realized. Those are the places that are running out of water because of climate. You don't have water, you can't control the infection. So climate change really matters. But I think the key point, Marshall, is that in the solution space, what we need to do to prevent pandemics are the same things we need to do to prevent climate change, whether that's preventing deforestation, preventing the burning of fossil fuels. These are actions that are win-wins, and, and not just in those two domains, of course, because we know that air pollution, for example, is a huge driver of health inequity in the United States, uh, not to mention all kinds of other problems. And so the, the thing I try and focus on is that we have to address these things now for all kind, I mean, we had plenty of reasons to get off fossil fuels before, but now we have compounding reasons. Uh, and so the value proposition grows stronger. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I've watched something and I'm curious to see, get your perspective on it too. I've watched sort of the same types of sort of questioning of science expertise, denial, sort of Dunning-Kruger effect and confirmation biases ongoing with COVID-19 in the same way that we see it in climate change. Um, what's your take on why that's happening? Why do you think there are people out there that know more about the, the, the medicine or the sort of health aspects of this than you, a pediatrician? Well, Marshall, it's such an important question. I've taught a course at Harvard for over uh, 10 years now. We've made it online. It's been taken by, last check, almost 80,000 people in over 100 countries. Is and this, is this, by the way, I want to take an opportunity to mention that because I was going to mention, is this the health effects of climate change, the Harvard X course? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So go, go, keep going. I want to, let me set it up and let you continue. Uh, continue. He's the course director for the Human Health and Global Environmental Change and created this Harvard X course called the Health 
effects of climate change, which you just heard him mention, which explores climate change influences on health, air quality, nutrition, infectious disease, human migration, and so forth. So please continue. Yeah, yeah if you're really bored, it's free and online. <laughs> um, I recommend people go check it out. Uh, the, the students, after a while, after we talked about and like stuff we've been talking about, how climate change matters to health, what we need to do, and the fact that we can do those things, be it renewable energy, greening our cities, all these things, they said, you know, that's not actually going to get us to yes. You know, we have all these solutions and we're not using them. What's going on? And it's to your question, which is what we face here is a communications challenge. And really, frankly, we need to get inside our heads. And so we've dedicated a part of that course to understanding how it is when we have a pandemic or climate change that it's so easy for people to follow messages that are completely nonsense. And if we don't get at that, we're going to have a hard time making progress, right? So, um, you know, whether it be coronavirus or, or climate, there are a couple of fundamental points here. One is that when we don't have an educational framework to understand a problem, we tend to believe the folks we trust for other reasons first, right? So we don't approach it objectively, and we all do this. I mean, that's what we do. And so if you haven't learned about climate change or, or, or infectious diseases or these kind of things, you're going to trust the people you already trust. You don't understand how science works. You're not going to be able to look at the science independently, right? So well, that makes it pretty clear that you're going to trust, you know, people who are maybe very authoritative on one thing and maybe saying other stuff about they don't something they know anything about, and and you run into trouble. I see this with vaccinations and children. Um, we see, you know, and so I'm very well versed there, and certainly in climate change and and even with this pandemic. The other thing, and this is another critical thing, which actually goes back to Chicago, the the first doomsday cult that was studied by psychologists. Uh, emerged in Oak Park, Illinois, which is a suburb just west of Chicago. They were called the Seekers. Uh, it was the 1950s, and they predicted the end of the world. And uh, a psychologist named Leon Festinger decided it would be kind of interesting to embed himself in this cult to figure out what happens when the reality that they have predicted doesn't happen. Do they say, oops, we got it wrong? No, they don't. They come up with rationalizations. They say, we got the date wrong. Uh, you know, in the Mayan apocalypse of 2010, when people said the world's going to end, there was one group that, that I thought famously <laughs> said, oh, you misunderstood us. We didn't say that the world's going to come to an end tomorrow on like New Year's Day. It's the start of a hundred year apocalypse, which I thought was brilliant, right? Like, talk about hedging your bets. So what Festinger uncovered was, was essentially what he later termed cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. and, and the reality is, is that once our brains have understood the world is flat and we've invested our emotional selves in that understanding, we've gone on marches, we've paid money, we've done, we have an enormously hard time moving backwards, right? So there's a sort of, you know, founder's effect there. And that's what happened with climate change. We, we had people who, you know, Naomi Resky's book, were purposely misled, right? And and they didn't, and we didn't have the wherewithal to really get the education, the understanding there. And, and so we got behind the eight ball. Hard for people to pick up from the understanding that, that they were fed and move on to a new reality in the same way as those people who invested in a doomsday cult had a hard time moving on. So that's another challenge. But that gets back to why we're doing Climate MD. Climate MD is based upon the science that shows that health messages 
are a way to get people out of this mooring they're in, especially when they're communicated from someone they trust, i.e., and the research has shown this time again, they're primary care medical providers. Now, we're not the only folks who can do this in our country, but my job is to try and get us to stand up and start talking about it because, as I've mentioned, the problem we face is not the fact that we don't have solutions. We have the solutions. We know how to do this. We've quantified the astounding benefits to health, and particularly for the people in our country who have been left behind. We need to get folks on board, and to do that, we need people to stand up and talk about it in ways that make sense from a trusted source uh, and, and providing people with a really concrete near-term example. I mean, climate change is a problem that happens over decades, but when you stop burning fossil fuels, that air pollution saves lives in the community that, ha that happens in right now. So, so, you know, these are, I see them as critical uh, challenges and, and, I, and I'm cautiously optimistic that if we can ramp this up, we're going to see more progress. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Dr. Aaron Bernstein, who's at Harvard University and so much more. I'm going to actually give you a few more of his credentials here. I've, I've kind of run down some through the podcast. Uh, he's previously a member of the Harvard President's Climate Change Task Force and co-chairs the University Food Standards Committee. He serves on the American Academy of Pediatrics Council on Environmental Health Executive Committee and is chair of the board of directors at the U.S. Green Building Council, um, which I believe I spoke at a big event that they were a part of in Atlanta here recently. I was one of their keynotes when President Obama was there. Um, he's previously previously served on the board of scientific counselors to the CDC's National Center for Emergency Health and an Agency for Toxic Substances, and he holds bachelor's degrees in human biology from Stanford University and graduate degrees in medicine and public health from the University of Chicago and Harvard University. So clearly, clearly, we are dealing with someone that knows their stuff in this topic, but yet you just heard him in the last segment say he faces the same thing as a climate scientist that I face. Dunning-Kruger effect, cognitive dissonance, confirmation bias. I mean, the ultimate cognitive dissonance for me in my field is that someone will come up to me and say, hey, Dr. Shepard, what do you think of the groundhog's forecast? But then in the next breath, they'll say, I don't believe any of this climate change science stuff. So it's really a challenge to kind of deal with that, but we know it's out there. I want to get back to a question I sort of alluded to earlier. Um, is there anything, I mean, and I've dealt with this too from my side of the house as well. Is there anything that you see that would su suggest that a warmer, the warming season is going to help beat back COVID-19? Yeah. So I've looked at, at the science there and it's a best mix. And there was actually a National Academy report that, that said the same. You know, in the studies have been done, I thought what was interesting is that even in the studies that showed that heat slows it down, and I think, in, you know, if you're going to read into that evidence, the likelihood is that heat is going to slow it down. But, but what that showed was that it wasn't going to slow it down enough to prevent exponential spread, right? So the, the chain reaction that we see that, that can really, really do outbreaks. So, 
you know, but the bottom line is the evidence is by no means clear enough for us to all exhale and say we should just, you know, pretend that some, there's going to be a summer miracle and everything's going to stop. And you don't have to look any further than places like Singapore <laughs> or places that are, or, or, or Georgia for that matter. Well, Florida back in April who had record high temperatures throughout April, but still was dealing with the virus. Yeah. So, so, you know, is it going to slow it down? There's some chance, but clearly not enough to, to make it a non-issue. And, 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 and so I think we just need to, to keep a close eye on it. And that's fundamentally why testing is so important for this, that if we don't have the ability to, at this point, to, to really see who may be getting infected, we can't, you know, control it effectively. Now, I want to pick your brain here as a pediatrician. This is, um, as I often do, I'm not, you know, I have a set of guiding notes, but we like for this conversation on weather geeks to be uh, very free-flowing. And so you're a pediatrician. A couple of questions that come to mind as a father, not as a weather geeks host or as a scientist or a professor at the University of Georgia, but just as a father. What, why, why do we think that COVID-19 has not been so aggressive with kids? And then what's going on with this new sort of thing that I'm hearing about, this new sort of, uh, sort of I guess, sort of health issue related to COVID and kids? Yeah. So I just spent, uh, I literally just spent the last week working all week in the hospital taking children, care of children with, with um, infections and this, what we call and I, I, the acronym could be more baffling, but it's called MISC, like miscellaneous, oh, wow. um, multi-system inflammatory syndrome from coronavirus, um, is the acronym. Uh, and you know, I don't think anyone really understands why children have not been as badly affected as older people with, you know, an infection with the coronavirus. We've seen that with SARS. Actually, it was the same pattern. Uh, which is not to say that children are immune to the disease. But we know that viruses, many viruses, affect us differentially across lifespan. You know, a great example of that is chickenpox. You know, I had chickenpox when I was like four. I had like 10 chickenpox. It was no big deal. You get chickenpox when you're 30, it could kill you. Uh, polio, another good example. You know, polio virus had been around a long time before the 1950s, right? You didn't hear about iron lungs and children getting paralyzed very often. Prior to that, what happened was that the uh, people were getting the virus later and later because sanitation improved. And so instead of getting infected at six months, people were getting infected at age 10, and it was much more likely to cause paralysis. So we see viruses um, having different effects based on age. And, and what I expect we're going to learn, and you can call me later and <laughs> tell me I'm wrong, but what I would expect is that you know the immune system as it develops causes, you know, more or less attack upon a pathogen, right? So in adults with coronavirus, we see this, this sort of second wave, this inflammatory cytokine storm thing, we're calling it. And, and so people are in the process of recovery and their immune system goes nuts. And, and this is what happened to Peter Pied, who's a researcher, one of the main uh, guys who worked on HIV early on. He's been writing about it, but he had this inflammatory storm and this happens. And so this immune system just goes nuts. So it's possible that children's immune system is just more passive. Interestingly, we're learning a lot, not in children, but in bats about how their immune system is able to tolerate this virus and not get sick. And interestingly, some of the features of the bat immune response are actually similar to what we know about children's immunity. And so there may be some ability of children to sort of hold, you no, know, not go crazy when the virus infects them and to actually produce antiviral products in the body that can control. We don't know that for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if we learned that. 
Now, this other issue, the MISC, um, the, the things I'll say is that it is much more common than I think we previously realized, which is not to say that it's common by any stretch. It is still rare, but it is, you know, I, I saw many children with it in the past week. And these are children who, in some cases, didn't really have any acute illness, meaning you wouldn't have known they had coronavirus and they show up with this inflammatory syndrome. That is not unlike what we um, have seen with sort of its what we think is its first cousin, this thing we call Kawasaki's disease, which is also a, an immune response probably to an infection. And so I think the thing that's important for parents to know with this inflammatory condition is, you know, it is, first of all, not common. <laughs> Second of all, it, it is it is manifest by you know high persistent fevers right that's the first hallmark sign so and I'm talking fevers 102 103 and even if that happens the odds that there's anything that is in any way serious for the child's long term health are are even small so of the children who have this persistent fever you know we don't know the exact percentages but it is not probably the majority or even the large minority that you know we're really concerned about some of the things we're seeing that can affect the heart or other other organs. So um, I think the thing to be mindful of is that one, it happens, it's rare, it's treatable, at least as best we've seen, if it's caught early. And so I think the thing to to be mindful of is 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 looking for a fever that appears sort of out of the blue that's high that 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 doesn't go away. Um, and uh, but I do think it's it's showing us that this virus is doing stuff, be it in children or adults, that um, is not like any other coronavirus we've seen for sure. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And welcome back to Weather Geeks. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. Aaron Bernstein, who's a pediatrician and also a professor at Harvard University. And we're talking all things climate, weather, COVID-19, and just general space across Dr. Bernstein's expertise. Now, in this last segment, I want to just ask you a question that I likely won't deal with, but you're in the health healthcare profession and you're on the front lines, particularly with kids. What are you seeing in terms of this coronavirus or COVID-19? Um, have you treated a child that had the, had the disease or are you, have you been in hospitals or offices where there are adults that are suffering from this? What, what are you seeing? Yeah. I mean, I, I have. I mean, in children, fortunately, um, mostly children are okay. I mean, children get infected in, in the, you know, the vast majority of them uh, and, you know, uh, have very little symptoms and, and may have no symptoms at all. And so I think that is in some ways, uh, um, as a parent, um, you know, it helps me exhale. <laughs> yes. um, you know, most most children who who have symptoms, you know, they they have you know respiratory symptoms. They'll have a cough. Uh, they'll uh, may, they'll they may have a fever, um, and you know it can last uh, for days, uh, and and they tend to bounce back uh, pretty quickly. That that's mostly what I see. I mean, my job I'm 
I work primarily in the hospital, so I'm not the standard primary care pediatrician that's seeing kids in clinics. So the kids I'm seeing tend to be on the sicker end of the spectrum. Um, but fortunately, there, there are very, very few of them. Um, you know, I think the, the challenge, you know, as a pediatrician, and frankly, this is one part of this that we aren't talking enough about, is not so much the concern um, that I have for the infection getting into a child's body and causing symptoms, although that's obviously a primary piece. It's what it's doing to families, and particularly those families that have been most vulnerable. So again, as pediatricians, we're very concerned about the family and the stability of the family. We are concerned about everything from the nutrition in the family to housing security to financial security. And the children, uh, children we had the greatest concern for, you know, families who are economically disadvantaged, um, you know, they're the most likely to have lost a job. They're the most likely to have been exposed to the disease. They're the most likely to have some of the family die from the disease. And that matters to that child. We know that what we call adverse childhood events which could be anything from losing a, a parent or, or, or a close relative or a friend to witnessing, heaven forbid, uh, violence in their communities to financial stress uh, and poverty, that, that the sum of these things can really not just affect a child's health in childhood, but throughout the lifespan. And it's not just their mental health. We're talking about the risk of things like heart disease. So we need to be really mindful that even though the ch child may not have been infected, we need to think about what's going on in their home and their community and recognize that we need to be doing our best to make sure that we can buffer them for the potential of what we call toxic stress. We know that the single most important thing for any child in that environment is to have a stable, uh, trustworthy adult that they can turn to. That is the single most, and that could be a parent, it could be a teacher, it could be a pastor, uh, it could, it really can be anyone. And so one of the things we ask the children, you know, we see is, you know, if you really ran into trouble, who would you turn to? And that's a really important screening question for us, because if the answer to that, I, I, you know, I don't know, or it's obvious that the child is, you know, been, you know, doesn't have that, we need to work even harder to try and do stuff. So that's one of the dimensions of this, because it's had such an effect, as we know, on, on, on jobs in this country, on livelihoods, um, we've seen huge mental health burdens emerge in adults, understandably, that that really matters to the child. One, one final question before we, we have to, unfortunately, in this very fascinating podcast, uh, with the heat that you mentioned, we're, we're going into the hot, hot season, the warm season, heat waves are going to be with us. We're going to have hurricanes, and it's projected to be above normal hurricane season in the Atlantic. We have a, we're watching a system in the Gulf right now, Cristobal. Uh, we still have tornadic storms. Where I'm headed with this is in all these cases, you might end up with cooling centers or, sh or evacuation shelters or tornado evacuation shelters. What's your advice if, if they have these large numbers of people going into these shelters or cooling centers and we're still dealing with COVID? Yeah, I was just in a session with the mayor of Miami and, and this question came up. I mean, they're looking at it. Cristobal, I think, again, is a record-breaking storm. It's the earliest time, uh, three tropical storms earliest in history, yeah. you know, this is not random chance we're watching evolve in front of us. So, um, you know, the question asks, what are you going to do for the exact reason you said? And he said, we're reevaluating our plans. We need to figure out how to decentralize our evacuation routes and our shelters because we know that we can't protect people. Um, and of course, the people who are most at risk are likely going <laughs> to wind up being in those places. And that's true with heats. We're reevaluating heat plans and evacuation plans. 
because you don't want to try and protect people in one way and put them at risk in another way. And we also have to remember that just as I was talking about with heat, you know, there may be a greater reluctance to evacuating and to going to a shelter because people are understandably concerned. And so I, I think that what the pandemic has done is really, you know, caused us to, to look deeply at the roots of, of what's going on, right? So we've talked about science. You know, the good news is that we see evidence that people are looking to people who know their stuff more than ever. That when push, and that's really, to me, heartening, right? We could be turning to alchemy and witchcraft, and I'm sure some people are, but most folks are saying, you know, we really don't want to take a chance or we want to have the best information we can. So that's helpful. Um, it's, it's testing the social fabric of the country because when it push comes to shove, whether you're talking about going to a heating, a cooling center or a, a shelter during a hurricane and whether people are going to go, they're not having a community to, to be in, a part of and, and, and embedded in, and that, that is functional is just hugely important to protecting people from those events. And, and, you know, we see this in disaster after disaster where communities come together. And we've seen Americans increasingly paying attention to those closest to them. You know, we're, we're trusting more your local weather person, your, your local policymaker, um, and, and because they understand the needs and the values of the people that, that are in their community. And, and I just think that there's a, there's a real, um, you know, there's a, this is a pivotal moment in our country with all that's going on to really think about how we can forge a path forward that, you know, builds the social cohesion that's going to be so critical, that, that helps us understand how important things like climate actions are to really address, you know, in some ways, the inequities that are the fault lines through both pandemics and climate change course through. And that, in other parts of society as well. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I see some signs to be optimistic in the mess in the middle of this, um, you know, mess, and 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 I and I hope we can continue to 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 work towards a more just and 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 healthier country. Unfortunately, we have to end it. But where where can people find the Harvard X course that you mentioned? And also, are there any websites or social media you want to put out there? Oh, sure. Well, uh, our website, our center's website, uh, Harvard Chan Sea Change. Uh, you can just Google it and get to us. Uh, you can find our course there and, and all the resources. Um, uh, my Twitter handle is there, and uh, you know we're 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 really um, we're really focused at our center on, on on understanding not just why climate matters to health, but how the actions we take to address climate change can really get at better health, particularly for the most vulnerable. And at this moment, uh, dealing with injustice and equity, the poorest that just cannot be overstated. Um, and so I, I, you know, I see our work as, as important as ever. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with me. Well, no, we, we like to go all over the place with this podcast because it's not just, it's called Weather Geeks, but there are so many facets to weather that we like to touch them all. Before we get out of here, it's time in the podcast, those that listen to the podcast know it's time for the Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. 
This episode's Geek of the Week is someone I know well, Jordan McLeod. He's a climatologist who has studied at the University of North Carolina and his master's degree at the University of Georgia. I know him well because we've actually published some work together. His most memorable weather event was the flood of 1994 in central Georgia associated with Tropical Storm Alberto. He's also a fan of summertime thunderstorms, so we're in search, he's certainly gearing up for the thunderstorm season. If you know someone that would be deserving of the Geek of the Week honor, check out our social media pages. Dr. Bernstein, thank you so much for joining us this week on the Weather Geeks podcast. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. And I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Be sure to check us out next time on Weather Geeks. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.